Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin, which is a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Dale Glover. He is a Shroud expert and a Christian apologist, and he is the founder and creator of the Real Seekers Ministry. Uh, with that, let me introduce Dale. So he is a, a real seeker, someone who sincerely wants to know the truth about what our ultimate purpose is in creation. For about 10 years, he's researched the various positive and negative evidences for and against various religions. As of May 5th, 2018, he finally discovered the truth of Christianity, and so he repented of his sins and placed his faith in Christ that very day. And he's also done some interesting things using Bayes', uh, Bayes theorem, and I'm very interested in hearing about that. Subsequent to his coming to faith, he shared his faith as the Christian co-host of the Skeptics and Seekers podcast for two years before branching out on his own to host his new podcast, Real Seekers. Outside of podcasting, Dale is a philosopher, having just graduated with a master's in philosophy, in philosophy from Ryerson University in June of 2022, and his interests range from everything to the existence of God, to evil, the God challenge, and to the Shroud of Turin. Welcome, Dale. Awesome. Yeah, awesome intro. Hey, guy, how are you? Thanks for bringing me on. Absolutely, Dale. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, you've got some really interesting points, and I'm very excited to hear more detail about them. Uh, but before we get into that, so tell us, what is your backstory on getting involved in the Shroud of Turin? Uh, yeah, so so I guess kind of starting out, I, I grew up a Christian uh, from a Protestant perspective. So obviously, I knew nothing about the Shroud of Turin. Um, I remember one time when I think when I was a teenager, someone brought it up and I, oh, that's a Catholic thing. You know, I don't pay attention to that stuff. Um, but it wasn't until I kind of lost my faith about 12 years ago. Um, and that kind of sent me on a journey where I wanted to see, you know, what religion, if any, is true. Um, so I spent about a decade kind of researching the various religions, uh, as you said in the intro, looking at the various positive and negative evidences um, for and against the various religions there. And in terms of Christianity, um, there are about four positive evidences that led me to come to faith. So the first was uh, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so this is a subjective thing, but it produced uh, what philosophers call a properly basic belief. The second was the historical evidence for the resurrection. So people like Gary Habermas or Michael Kona, that kind of argument. Um, the third was the what I call the vindication prediction argument. Uh, so that one's a little bit of an interesting one. And then finally, the Shroud of Turin, um, when I discovered that evidence. So yeah, the, I kind of, it was Gary Habermas who first put me onto the Shroud. And I was amazed how could a Protestant even consider this stuff. Um, and then I just got hooked into it. I, I became associated with Barry Schwartz and, and listened to the scientific evidence. And I was just amazed. And uh, from that, uh, that played a role uh, in bringing me to faith. I, I converted to Christianity with a 53.14% probability, which sounds very weird, but uh, uh, there it is. That's, that's me. 
Yeah, yeah. So until it, I got to know. So what do you mean by that 51.4% probability? Uh, tell us how you came to that. Yeah, so so basically what I did when I when I studied all the positive and negative evidences, I would assign subjective probability values to them. Uh, you know, and this is uh, used in ph philosophical circles all the time. And then I would use a formula called Bayes' theorem that kind of helped me get a cumulative case overall probability. Okay, so I've got these negative factors and I've got these positive factors. Put it together, what's the overall uh, cumulative probability? 53.14, so that's more probable than not. And here I am, I believed. Fantastic. Well, you know, um, and uh, it is it is kind of interesting to see how different people come to their faith journey. And uh, and certainly that's a really interesting story. And, and also and how you came up uh, and become involved in understanding and learning and researching about the Shroud. Uh, fantastic. So um, now you've done some interesting writing and interesting podcasts. And I was on one and uh, one of them, I believe you use the Shroud of Turin, but it's called the Minimal Relevant Features. And so tell me, tell us about uh, what you mean by that. Uh, yeah, so, so it kind of goes back to like the main general question of how we identify miracles. And just in a quick nutshell, I, I use intelligent design. I think this whole supernatural versus natural thing, this is a product of the Enlightenment. You know, no one in the Bible or biblical days even understood that term. So I think what they understood was we're looking for signs or wonders. Um, and so for that, I'm looking for an event that's designed by God for a specific purpose, you know, designed to uh, authenticate the Christian religion. Um, and in terms of the Shroud of Trin, well, okay, how do I apply uh, specified complexity, you know, it's a uh, specified event, it conforms to an independent pattern, and the event is complex, it's highly improbable. So in terms of the shroud, I invented this minimal relevant features approach, um, which basically, uh, the first step is, okay, well, you have to prove the various uh, images exist with their physical and chemical features. And on that front, I kind of, I'm not sure if, uh, am I able to share the screen for a quick second or? Um, yeah, go for it. Uh, you should be able to do that. Okay, I'll just pop up this. Uh, hopefully that's that's showing up. There it comes, yep. Awesome. So, so as you can kind of see, these are my minimal relevant features. Um, I only selected ones that were first of all relevant so that they're necessary to make my argument that the shroud is a miracle or something it's and secondly they're highly evidentially established scientifically so these are in the peer-reviewed literature no no one really denies them um and then there's the scholarly consensus so for me um i did kind of two-thirds of the scholarship as sort of a rough estimation if you fulfilled those criteria i would have put you as a minimal relevant feature um so you know, here's three-dimensionality, body image superficiality, uh, body image uniformity, things like this. And then I would use that to evaluate all of the various image forming mechanisms. Um, so hopefully that, that makes sense there. Um, so, so yeah, the, the second part of that then is, okay, well, how do you prove that the shroud's image formation is complex? This is criterion B. 
uh, that it's improbable or an extraordinary event. And I think there are three ways to do that. So the first is to do kind of a traditional mechanistic type argument, right? So that's what we see in pro shroud circles, like from Bob Rucker, you know, people arguing for radiation hypothesis, um, or they're trying to disprove all the naturalistic mechanisms and say we have to go for an extraordinary one. The second way is through the uniqueness of the shroud, but it's not, a, not enough for it to be unique. It has to be unique despite a sufficient opportunity for it to be duplicated in a natural context. Um, so, you know, in terms of the shroud, we have uh, natural opportunity. How many millions of people have been buried in burial shrouds over history? How many of them have images? Only one. Um, and then the second way is the artificial opportunity. So those are relate to the field and lab experiments. Uh, has the shroud been duplicated in those? Nope. Uh, so therefore you could argue, well, it's unique and it's had a sufficient opportunity to be duplicated and yet it's not, that's extraordinary. Um, and then the third way is just through circumstantial uh, arguments, right? You know, the timing or something like that. Um, so that's that's how I would prove that it's extraordinary there. And then finally is the specification criterion. So obviously, what's the purpose of this extraordinary event? Why did God form these images? To authenticate the Christian religion. So on that front, in order to qualify under specificity, number one, the shroud's formation has to be sufficiently attached to Christianity. Uh, obviously, it's got an it through the image, the context, it's a crucified man that resembles Jesus. He's got a crown of thorns. He's dead. Uh, he was removed from the shroud in an extraordinary way within like days. Um, so I think that's sufficiently attached to the death and resurrection story. The second thing is that it has to serve to authenticate the truth of Christianity. And once again, as attesting to the death and resurrection, that's an essential belief of Christianity. Uh, so I think it fulfills that as well. Um, and then the last one, and then I'll shut up because I can <laughs> take too much time. But um, the, the last one is this issue of subsumability. And this is an issue that I think is important and not really addressed in a lot of the literature for miracles or, or for the shroud. Um, but you'll have like a Muslim, right? Arif Khan, who, who will say, no, the shroud authenticates the Muslim faith about this supernatural swoon theory or natural swoon theory or something, right? So what religion gets this event, right? Um, you know, and for example, both Muslims and Christians claim a virgin birth. If we could prove there was a virgin birth, who gets it? So my take on that is that the first religion to chronologically to claim an event gets it unless the subsuming religion can, number one, prove the event's not contradictory to its doctrine. Uh, so with Islam, you might say, well, the Quran says Jesus didn't die and rise. The Shroud says he did die and rise. That contradicts. Um, secondly, they have an independent miracle uh, of their own. And then thirdly, and lastly, um, the overall probability for that religion is more probable than not, or more probable than the original religion. And that's how I do it. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting and, and definitely uh, like your logic there. It, it really does flow uh, very well and and makes sense. And and I, I never would have thought uh, about the Muslim religion and potentially claiming the shroud as part of that, as opposed to the the shroud being you know kind of proof that that resurrection took place. 
And so if that's the case, if the shroud is proof that the resurrection took place and that it was a miraculous event or a supernatural event, and we'll talk about what those, uh, what those are, uh, how those might be defined, then did God purposefully leave us the shroud as evidence of the resurrection? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that would be all about the, the specification criterion, right? And I, I think the answer is obviously yes, um, but it, it could require some work. So I, you know, I mentioned I had Arif Khan on my show, who's a, a personal friend of Barry. He's, he's a great guy. And he interprets the shroud. No, that's evidence that authenticates my religion. So that's where you would have to get into certain details uh, of the forensics and stuff like that. And well, does this actually prove that the guy in the shroud was dead or can it, can it prove that he was alive or some, something like that, I think would be able to allow us to adjudicate between those. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Or? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, cause I, I kind of uh, see the argument that if, if God is omnipotent, then he could have, you know, Jesus could have been resurrected and disappeared or however you consider what that event is and he would have been gone, and uh, and then there would have would not have been any proof for it. Not that we necessarily would have needed proof, but then why, if that shroud is miraculously made and not by the hand of man, but by the hand of God, then if he could have caused the resurrection without the shroud, because he is omnipotent, then why would he have caused the resurrection with the proof with the shroud? And so then I think, therefore, there's kind of like a logical uh, uh, end that comes out of that, that said, God put that here for, uh, for proof for those people that are like, you know, Thomas doubting Thomas that said, no, 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 I want to put my fingers into your wounds and I want to really see and believe. And so, uh, you know, there's, uh, I think that's kind of where that, that ends up going. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I a hundred percent agree. Right. I mean, think about it too like the the christians obviously came to believe in jesus death and resurrection they were the first chronologically to claim potentially the, the shroud evidence or, the, or at least the death and resurrection right so if this miraculous shroud image is attached to that event then obviously that uh confirms the earliest gospels as opposed to you know a later islamic belief or something like that mm. Yeah, and I like your point, too, about the, uh, you know, which one claims it first, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, uh, let, let's change uh, direction here just a tad. So how do you define a miracle? What, what, is a, what is an event that you could say is miraculous? Yeah, so, so I would say that a miracle is an event caused by God, either directly or indirectly, um, and that is uh, detectably intelligently designed for a spe specified purpose. Um, so that's where we're kind of getting back into that intelligent design and specified complexity. Um, I really like Bill Dembski's specified complexity. So um, I'm not sure how, how much detail you want me to get into, but like specification, it, oh, uh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, you're, you're perfect. Okay, so, so starting with specification, right? The main thing with this is that it's an independent pattern. That's what's really important. You can have fabrications, uh, a pattern that's uh, not detached from the event itself, right? So an example of that, you, you fire an arrow into a tree, and then you paint a target around it. The target 
would be the specification, but obviously that's a fabrication. You're, it's not detached from where you shot the arrow. Um, a real specification is you have your target, you have your bullseye, you paint that first, and then you shoot the arrow, and it, it tells you how good are you or not. Um, so that's the, the key there in a nutshell. Um, with complexity, um, so the I guess the thing, not to go into too much detail, but like there's a calculation that you have to do. And the main thing is you're looking at it, look, there are highly probable events. These we attribute to natural laws or regularities. Then there are intermediate probabilities. Um, so these things can happen through chance and, and natural law working together. And then you have what are called events that are small probabilities. So these are hypothetically complex, right? But again, in order that that alone, highly improbable events happen all the time, as you'll hear from atheists and skeptics and stuff. So that's why you need the specification as well. But in order to understand, okay, is, is a probability small enough? The thing that you have to do is, okay, you calculate the probability of that event's occurrence and you compare it to what's called a probability bound for that event, right? So if it's smaller than that probability bound, then you can say it's it's designed. If it's above that, you would say, well, it's a, it's a small probability, but it just maybe it happened by chance. Mm. Well, you know, one thing too, though, um, that I was wondering as you were talking is let's say that, I don't know, a thousand years ago, something would have fit your criteria based on the scientific knowledge at the time. And then now you progress to that, well, a thousand years later. And now you can say, well, you know, that was thought of as a miracle, but based on our current science and understanding, we kind of don't believe it's a miracle for these reasons. How does that fit into your into your definitions? So that is a, an amazingly great question, actually. Yeah, uh, you're good uh, as an interviewer. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, there is an element of relativity to my what I call the you know G belief authenticating events or these religion authenticating events, right? So I only say, look, God God operates to the reasonable person. Um, so that's the legal definition, an average person. And you don't have to be a genius to recognize these things, right? And because of that, there is an element of relativity. What would be extraordinary to someone in the medieval period, lightning maybe or something like that, might be different compared to us because our current understanding of science is uh, more so than a medieval person. So I think that we can accommodate that. Again, they still have to fulfill all those criteria. So it's you know, lightning, you can rule out lightning, it wouldn't qualify or something like that under all the criteria that I give. And so the the thing, the objection I would get is, well, that's just rational justification or something, right? It's a lesser standard. Sure, they these medieval guys have reasons, but in the end, they have a false belief, and it turns out to be wrong. Um, so I think that God deals with people where they're at, and it's God that allows us to convert that justification to warrant in that moment. And we follow the evidence as we have it here today. God expects us to operate on that basis, not to be saying what if and, and wondering about the future. Um, and the reason I, I do that is I say God would not allow what's called undue confusion. Um, so this is kind of me co-opting and let me know is this making sense or am i talking gibberish or yeah no, no it's making sense absolutely cool so so atheist and skeptic i'm copying an atheist and a skeptic here a uh, famous philosopher atheist philosophers like theodore drange or something and 
they'll say, well, look, in the Bible or God, there's all this confusion in the world. And if God exists, he wouldn't allow this confusion, right? So I kind of adopt theirs and turn it on their heads and say, well, sure, I, I think that God, if he exists, he wouldn't allow, he would allow certain forms of confusion, but he wouldn't allow undue confusion. And by that, I just mean confusion that unjustifiably hinders one from achieving their ultimate purpose in creation. And I, so on that front, I don't think we can trust in God that the evidence that we have, if it fulfills these criteria relative to our times, we can be warranted in believing until such time as we learn uh, learn um, differently, right? And if a medieval person never learned about the laws of gravity or something like that, then God can't hold him accountable. So he'll be saved even if he had a false belief from our perspective. Yeah, I like your um, your point about confusion. And I can't remember exactly what the term was, but if he gave us free will and everyone had free will, then uh, if everyone had exactly the same free will, then I guess that would mean there'd be very little confusion. But because we have free will and we have different levels and types and variants and whatever of free will, that automatically leads to a certain amount of confusion because we have free will. So, so it's kind of, uh, you know, I think that's one of the uh, very important tenets of, of Christianity, and, and, and I don't know about other religions very well, but is that if you have free will, then there, there is going to be confusion. And, uh, and then to your point, then that confusion is allowed by God, because it, uh, it's part of the, 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 the gift that he gave us of, of free will. Exactly. And, and beyond that, we, we live in a fallen world. So that's a cause right. of Right. A lot of confusion as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's that distinction, you know, God can't allow undue confusion. You have to make mm. that argument. Um, but you can't prove that he can't just allow any confusion. I think that's ridiculous. So you're right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I'm going to go back a second. Uh, you mentioned Dembski's specified complexity. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, so, the specification is what I was uh, mentioning before. So it's that independent pattern. So just to give a little bit more details. So in terms of it being independent, it has to be independent in two ways. So there's what's called conditional independence. Um, so this means that knowledge of the pattern does not affect the probability of the events occurrence, right? Um, so for an example of this, you know, it can't be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, well, I know in advance my prophecy and I can fulfill it. So now I go out and do it. That would, that would be conditionally independent. Um, and then the other way it's independent is it has to display tractability. So that's kind of the opposite. The event's occurrence is indeterminate in deriving the pattern. Um, so... Uh, let me let me give an example. Here's a good analogy that might help. Um, so let's pretend we have a, a license plate. We have this guy named Bob, and it's his birthday. Bob was born on January 5th, 1981. And as one of his gifts, he gets a car with the license plate that says Bob 1581, um, corresponding precisely to his birthday, January 5th, 1981. Um, so you you would be an absolute fool if you just said, oh, well, that's just random chance or natural laws that explains that. Well, 
No, actually there is intelligent design there because we have this specified pattern, you know, that his birth date is what it is independently, whether or not he got that license plate or not. And then we have the license plate itself. We look at the complexity criterion. Well, it's highly, highly improbable that just through natural chance, he would have gotten out those precise uh, letters and numbers on his license plate. No, that was obviously designed. Um, and yeah, as I said, when you're calculating the complexity, there's a calculation for that. So you have to compare the overall probability, what's called saturated probability. So it's uh, an example of that. So let's say we roll a dice. The, the probability that you would roll a five is one out of six. Um, hopefully that's making that's sense. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh -huh. But in order to get a saturated probability, that's not enough. You need to consider the probabilistic resources. Um, so there's replicational resources and specificational resources that can increase that probability. So, for example, with replicational resources, I could say, okay, what's the probability you would roll three? Um, okay, one out of six, but you get to roll the dice three times. Okay, well, that's increasing the likelihood that you'll get that result. Or if I say specificational resources, what's the probability that you'll roll a three after three rolls or roll a five? Okay, now you've got two specified outcomes. So that increases your, your saturated probability value. Um, so you have to take that into account and you compare it to the, that probability bound. Is it higher or lower? Um, and that's how you decide if it's complex or not. Uh, yeah, hopefully that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, no, interesting. And uh, as you were talking, I was always, when I was growing up, and I don't know, maybe that's way too long ago, but there was always the the probability that if you had, I don't know, 100 monkeys typing on keyboards for 100 years, there was mm -hmm. some reasonably certain probability that they were going to type out all the works of Shakespeare. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, believe it or not, Bill Dembski talks about that specific example in his book. He proves, look, that's complex. That There's no way <laughs> that would happen by chance. So uh, yeah, that um, I think this is controversial, but out of curiosity for you, Dembski calculates what's called the universal probability bound. So when you're comparing the overall saturated probability to a probability bound, usually it's localized to a specific context. And so that can change depending on what type of event you're looking at. But Dembski calculates that, look, it doesn't matter whatever event you have, monkeys typing, miracles, or, you know, evolution or whatever it is. Uh, if, it, if it's less than one divided by 10 to the power of 150, uh, if it's smaller than that, it's automatically complex and therefore designed kind of thing. So he calls that a universal yeah. 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 Interesting. So I'm in marketing. And uh, one of the things about marketing is, is you don't sell a product, so to speak. You sell the perceptions of the product. And one of the things I remember from one of my statistics courses, I think it was, and the professor was talking about, you know, you have a, a certain probability that something is going to take place, you know, one out of six for the die rolling a three and whatever it is for any of those combinations. <clears throat> but those are kind of the mathematical probabilities. But then you have kind of this curvilinear response in terms of how humans view the probability of something. So, um, you know, they could, uh, going down to the bottom, they'd say, well, the probability of that happening is, is maybe, you know, zero. 
and and yet in reality it might even it might be as high as one out of a hundred or to your thing you know to your point it's one out of whatever it was 10 to the 150th and then similarly the probability going up when you get up to near a probability of one then they also have a misperception on there and the example that they gave was window washers uh, they have whatever it is, a, you know, a 2% chance of falling and killing themselves. And yet, if you then, uh, for every time they did it, so if it was 2% or whatever the number is, if they did the, uh, if they did window washing 50 times, then there was 100% that at one of those times that they would fall. And we as humans have a, a lot of challenges trying to understand that. Don't know if you've come across anything like that in, in what you've done. Oh, dear goodness. Yeah. So, so I fall for all those tricks. So despite how I sound, I am not an actor. I have no clue. I, I was talking to Bob Rucker about this recently today, actually. And I, I am horrible. I have no idea how to help to calculate in a frequentist sense, the probability of, of miracles or, you know, Jesus rising from the dead. Um, and this is why I specified we, we're using subjective probabilities. Again, we, we use this all the time in decision theory or, or, you know, in philosophy and stuff like that. So the, if you grant that subjective probabilities are good, um, okay, well, I mentioned that you have to have this overall probability um, and you compare it to a probability bound. So for me, I, remember, I, my standard, because God wouldn't allow undue confusion, is a reasonable person, an average person like me who has no idea how to calculate stats and stuff like that. So I think if a reasonable person, the probability bound is less than 50%. If you can assign and you're rational in doing so, you, you have reasons, you're warranted in you know, believing that a prob the probability of the shroud's image formation is less than 50% on all of our currently well-established natural mechanisms in that, that's sufficient. That's lower than that probability bound. Uh, and I think that's where the average person would would think about it like that. And so God is uh, wouldn't allow me to be unduly confused in that way. So yeah, in that way, I'm not a rigorous mathematician, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm applying the theory. Yep, to absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I, I used to be a mathematician and I don't claim that I am anymore because uh, you, I get into all these things and I go, yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, it's it, I, I did well in school, but it's it's been a while. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. I did well in school on math, but that doesn't mean that I can do it now. That is uh, so true. So thank, thank um, you, Mr. Bob Rucker. He's the math yeah, guy. Him, so. that, that is exactly right. That's we're going to leave that off to uh, to Bob Rucker. <laughs> there you go. And those other guys that know how to use it. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, now. Uh, one of the things you talked about as well uh, in some of the papers was potentially the irrelevancy of the carbon-14 dating of the shroud. And one of the things that many of us uh, were became disillusioned with the shroud was in 1988, there was testing of the shroud using carbon-14 radiocarbon dating or whatever the term you want to use. And it came up with a date of 1260 to 1390 that the shroud had to have been created or the linen in the shroud had to have been created or formed or grown uh, between 1260 and 1390. So tell us, uh, tell us what, uh, what you mean by now the irrelevancy of the carbon-14 dating. 
Sure. So, so uh, believe it or not, so it, it's the relevancy of the dating, not not just the carbon fourteen dating. It, it's the date. If if the shroud is in fact medieval in origin, um, my claim is so what? It it doesn't matter. And I know that's controversial. I'm the only person that I know. I, I've had debates with Gary Habermas about it, and and everyone, even Teddy, doesn't like it. So. Um, but let me make my case. Let, let me see, right? So, so the way I see it is, look, the skeptic is the one that has the burden of proof. They're the one making the claim. The shroud skeptic is basically making a, a simple modus ponens argument, right? So they're, they're saying, look, premise one, if the shroud is provably medieval, then the shroud images are not miraculous signs from God that Christianity is true. Their second premise, the shroud is provably medieval through carbon dating or the memo, whatever they want to say. Well, therefore, the shroud, the shroud images can't be miraculous signs from God. Um, no, obviously, everyone in the pro-shroud community, including myself, we attack premise two as an unsound premise. And we say, no, it's not provably medieval. We can date it back to Jesus. And I, I'm on board with that. I think that the shroud does provably, probably, it's a weak case, but probably dates to the time of Jesus, outside of the miraculous considerations we can prove that it belonged to the historical Jesus. Um, but the point here is I'm saying we can also challenge premise one. Even if the shroud is provably medieval, we can ask the skeptic, well, how does that prove that it's not a miracle from God? Because God is perfectly able to do a miracle in the medieval period uh, or today or any time to authenticate Christianity. And just think about it, right? Like how many uh, we have to people today studying modern miracle healings as a proof that Christianity is true. Uh, my friend Caleb Jackson is writing a great book on that. And Craig Keener, he's written a two-volume book on that as well. So we recognize that it's not implausible that God can do a miraculous event at any time in history to authenticate the truth of the Christian religion. Um, so, so yeah, on, on that front, I would say even if the Shroud is medieval, that alone doesn't prove uh, that it can't be miraculous proof from God. And, you know, I've, I've come up with about five to six skeptical uh, arguments that they would try to, you know, provide as warrant for the truth of premise one. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to? Yeah, no, that'd be great. I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. All right. Sure. Perfect. So, so the first thing that I've heard from skeptics is they'll say, well, no, actually, if the shroud is medieval, it must be a fake. And it can't be a miracle because, number one, it's implausible that God would do a medieval miracle. So uh, that's the kind of, I already kind of just addressed that with saying, no, God can do a miracle. It's perfectly plausible for him to do a miracle at any time in history. And many Christians believe he is doing miracles even today for that purpose. Um, the other, the second objection that I've gotten is kind of a historical one because I've suggested a, a thing where Jeffrey Descharny was praying one day and for a sign from God and then poof the the shroud of Turin appeared and so they'll well that's totally ad hoc you're just making that up for you know for this purpose and I, my answer to that is yes of course look I'm not suggesting this as a serious historical hypothesis I'm not making a positive claim you as the skeptic are you have to prove that something like that didn't happen so uh, you have to remember that burden of proof, right? I'm not making a claim. I'm just saying, well, what if? What if? You need to prove that that what if can't happen or didn't happen or something. 
Um, okay, so the third one, this is probably the one, the lack of sufficient attachment. So remember going back to my criteria for identifying miracle, one of the specification criteria, sub-criteria, is that we can prove it's sufficiently attached. You know, so for example, how, how does it authenticate Christianity and stuff like that? Well, we would, I would try to argue, well, look, it portrays, obviously portrays Jesus of the Christian gospels. You've got those crown of thorns, the wound in the side, uh, the, his scourging, he, he looks like he died by crucifixion. Um, and then finally, um, his body vanished, creating extraordinary images within a few days before signs of decomposition could come in. That is enough to go, yeah, this is uh, testifying or authenticating the story of Jesus in the Christian Gospels. And the example I give to try and illustrate this is, look, let, let's pretend we have a picture of Jesus. It, undisputed, it's a painting. Someone painted it. Uh, it's perfectly natural. And we know it was made and painted in 2000 AD. We, we know the artist. We know everything. And then one day you're praying or something for a sign and God zaps the painting and it becomes a miraculous image authenticating that right before your eyes. Are you really going to say, yeah, but that's not, I know that's a painting, miraculous painting of Jesus. It has all these same features of the shroud images, but I don't care because that dates the year 2000. It can't have anything to do with Jesus. No, no if we've got proof that it's a miracle, who cares? You don't need a chronological uh, connection as long as you have that sufficient attachment. And from the images, we can we know that is meant to be Jesus. That image portrays Jesus of the Gospels. So that would be my argument there. Does that make sense? Or uh... yeah, no, absolutely. And I, um, I I think that actually makes a lot of sense because if you if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in God, then uh, there can be, and there may have been, and there are miracles taking place potentially every day, every minute, every second. And uh, and and it doesn't then mean that something that may have taken place in 1260 to 1390 could have could it could have been a miracle. Just to your point, it could have been a miracle. Um, and uh, but it uh, you know you can take it that maybe even to the second level and then say, well, then if if it could have been a miracle, then could there have been potentially even a miraculous intervention in the carbon 14 dating that gave you an answer from 1260 to 1390 instead of from 33 to 36 AD or something like that. So you could also, you could also argue the other, the other way as well. I, yeah. So, so yeah. So in terms of plausibility, for, absolutely. Right. That's what my case rests on. But the only difference I would say is, well, look, there, there is no question of, well, did God do, there's a question, did God do a miracle in the carbon 14 or not? We don't have proof. With the shroud images, regardless of whether they're medieval or not, we have the scientific evidence to conclude, yeah, this is a miracle. That that stays the same, regardless of whether it's a mm. 1300 AD or a first century AD date, the scientific evidence of its properties, its superficiality, its uniformity, all that good stuff that allows us to say, yeah, this is a miracle, that stays the same. Uh, so, I, yeah, that's how I would say it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so then, with kind of maybe that in the background, and I don't know uh, how this might fit, but it might fit. Then, do I need to have the shroud to be a faithful Christian? Of course not. No. Um, so, I, I 
for me, um, the Shroud of Turin at the time of my conversion was a necessary um, part for me. Uh, but it's not necessary for everybody. Some people, uh, my parents uh, know next to nothing about the Shroud of Turin. They're true Christians for them. The inner witness of the Holy Spirit uh, was strong enough as evidence. For me, it wasn't strong enough um, alone. Um, so I needed other evidences to supplement it, like the historical evidence of the resurrection, the Shroud of Turin. Um, my faith now has gotten stronger since my conversion. I could take out the shroud and still have enough evidence. So the question we need to ask in a Bayesian sense is, look, it, and this goes back to refuting David Hume, his take on miracles, is the evidence we have sufficient? Is it more probable than not overall, cumulatively, given all the positive and negative evidences we have? It, if I have one, if I'm 100% warranted based on the shroud evidence that alone is enough if i'm uh 100% or 51% convinced based on uh the inner witness of the holy spirit without the shroud that's good enough that's all you need yeah yeah well and and i guess too uh, from maybe from god's perspective and not that i could ever imagine being you know thinking in his in his shoes is uh, if the shroud in its existence is able to convert one or many uh, people into Christianity, then it is also serving a, a long-term purpose that when Jesus Christ was here, he certainly started the, you know, his, his Jewish sect at the time, and which, can, which then transformed into modern Christianity. And then now you have the, we have, we luckily have the shroud as well. And if that leads to more Christians, then what's wrong with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I fully agree with that. Um, one quick question. Did I convert you at all on the relevancy of the dating or am I still totally alone on that? Um, uh, I'm going to take a rain check on answering that. Oh. I do have a different... <laughs> okay okay All i right, have a fair. different opinion but that's uh, uh in terms of the, the the dating of the shroud uh the carbon 14 dating of the shroud and 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 there's it's clearly been a uh you know an up and down or maybe a down and up relationship with that with that finding in 1988 and it you know it it certainly uh hurt in a big way the science and the investigation of the shroud and the understanding of the shroud because all of a sudden here it was this reputable purported dating of the shroud to 1260 to 1390 and uh and my opinion is that uh is that the uh is that the carbon 14 measurement so there's the measurement and then there's the translation of the measurement into a date is that the measurement of the the, the ratio of carbon fourteen to carbon twelve was done correctly? You had three independent labs. Not everybody is going to be in cahoots. They're not all, you know, coming up with some different answer or some some pre-planned answer. They came up with independent answers that all, you know, were relatively the same. And then you have uh, people like Bob Rucker, who you've mentioned a couple times. And then he said, well, yeah, that that actually fits in with another theory. And I don't want to go into that, but there's another theory that makes that right. And my my point is that when you take his theory and or any other theory around that is that it's not the measurement of the carbon 14. It's the transformation, the mathematical transformation of that ratio of carbon 14 to carbon 12 that says 1260 to 1390. And that's where they that's where they flogged it, to use their terms. 
Yeah, so, uh, and I just I'll I'll just clarify if you don't mind I'll, I'll just yeah, clarify no, absolutely. for the audience because yeah I don't want there to be any confusion um, in terms of my position and of the irrelevancy of the dating. That is not me saying oh I think the car I think it is medieval. No, I I think the evidence disproves that. And I'm t- the carbon fourteen is garbage evidence. I, I give three reasons. Number one, they only dated one sample, and I have quotes from Harry Gov himself, the guy who invented the AMS carbon-14 dating method, he himself said the single sample will be strictly questioned, totally unjustified from a scientific perspective. The second is we we do have evidence um, that the sample location is non-representative. Now, I I don't go for the invisible reweave hypothesis, but from a strict justification standpoint, I think that we do have this evidence. It's published in peer-reviewed journals. It should lower, at the very least, to some degree or justification and confidence in the carbon 14 dating. And finally, we have Bob Rucker's, which just destroys everything, right? With that, with that chi-square test, they do not have 95% degree of confidence. There's an, uh, what is it? 98.6% probability that some kind of systematic bias mm-hmm. was at place. What, what the heck was that? You can't escape that skeptics. You've got to answer. What is that bias? Um, we as pro shroud guys, we have an answer for that. So Right. Well, and and that right there, I, I find fascinating. And I was just on another call this morning and uh, we were talking about exactly that is that there's there's three dimensions to any number that you get. There's uh, there's there's the measured number that you measure and whatever that is, you measure it. And in ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the cases, it does not equal the actual number of what it truly is. It's yeah. kind of like, uh, you know, and then then there's also kind of like an estimated number based on, uh, and in, in my case, it was based on a model. And those three numbers will never, ever be the same. It's kind of like a clock. A clock is only right, you know, twice a day or a watch is only right twice a day. The rest of the time it's wrong. And so in a similar way, when you come up with a measurement and to try and say that that's the real uh, actual date, uh, there, there can be a lot of discrepancy in there. And unfortunately, the carbon-14 dating is one out of, I don't know, maybe 50 different measurements for the shroud, for the age of the shroud. And 49 of those measurements say that it's pretty close to being at the, you know, the beginning of the, the two millenniums ago in, in the time of Christ. And then you have this one that's really just, you know, kind of out in left field. And so, uh, uh, you know, and what that means, though, is that someone, whether it's, uh, you know, the people that did the carbon-14 dating, they have to tell us why and how that might not be, you know, they have to figure out that systematic error that you were talking about. They have to tell us what's wrong. And, uh, and, and, uh, and they, they basically, based on all the counts that I've read, they shuffled it, uh, swept it under the rug and tried to hide it. And it was only uh, 15 or 20 years later that that uh, that it was uh, determined that they actually did sweep it under the rug. And so now now that that whole testing and a whole dating has been basically thrown out the window. Unfortunately, as you know, um, when the headlines hit that the carbon, you know, that the shroud is dated to 1260 to 1390. And when it's determined, you know, a handful of years or days or months or what decades later that that was incorrect. The news of the correction never gets the same splash as the news of the the first uh, yeah. the first answer. Yeah, that 
honestly, I, I, I'm just sick of that bi the bias in the media. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not a fan of the, the <laughs> mainstream media at all. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Well, and and you know, it is it is the world we live in. So unfortunately, we've got to kind of live with that. So uh, we are about out of time. But uh, is there any one thing or uh, anything else that you'd like to get across that uh, we haven't been able to talk about? Um. Well, I think so. I think I covered pretty much. Um, hopefully, not too horribly. But I, um, you know, I covered the the main points that I think are a unique perspective. Whether you agree or disagree with me, that that's fine. But like, hopefully, it'll it's something to think about. Don't just grant to the skeptic uh, certain assumptions, right? Question that and stuff. Um, other than that, I guess for your audience that doesn't know me, kind of thing. So I'm at realseekerministries.wordpress.com uh, or on YouTube, just search Real Seekers, and I have what are called the Shroud Wars series. Um, so I have a bunch of debates or interviews with. Shroud experts, much like what uh, Guy does, not as well or not done as well as he does. But um, and I, I also have my Shroud solo show. So so this is me. I've I've written about a three hundred page chapter on the Shroud. So th this was at the time of my conversion. Here's how I came to faith through the Shroud evidence type thing, and that's freely available. And I'm doing Shroud solo shows on that, where I present the evidence in lecture type series. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I uh, thank you for that. And, um, and thank you to the audience. Uh, really appreciate it. It's always it's great to have Dale on. He brings a very interesting perspective and has a I love the logic that he's thought through how you get from, you know, from one point to the other and, and how you can do that in a very structured way so that you can really get to the uh, to a correct conclusion as opposed to just jumping to a conclusion. And I really appreciate that. And so, Dale, thank you so much. And you certainly helped me on uh, on some of my argumentation as I was prepping for this. I really uh, did learn uh, quite a bit. And thank you for then for helping to clarify it today. So uh, please visit. Uh, Dale mentioned it. It was realseekersministries.wordpress.com. Yeah. Realseekersministries.wordpress.com. And oh, I think you said you're singular, just so. Real Seeker. Okay, thank you for that. Realseekerministries.com. Realseekerministry.wordpress.com. Uh, we'll get it right. <laughs> and then uh, otherwise, though, in your podcast is Real Seekers. Yeah, yeah. And then it's, it's so stupid. It's it's mixed up, but yeah, sorry about that. Uh, that's all right. Um, and uh, and then you also, I, I, I've listened to a handful of your uh, Shroud solo podcasts, as well as your Shroud Wars, and uh, they are very interesting. And I definitely recommend, uh, you know, find him on, uh, you know, on your podcast uh, series or on realseekerministries.wordpress.com. And and hopefully you'll get the chance to really understand more about the topic. Otherwise, please stay tuned for many uh, other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you'd like, if you like this episode, please rate it with five stars. Thank you, Dale. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was a, a great talk. Thank you.